AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Stan, you have an interesting article about some new malware. Yes, I was reading this blog from Palo Alto Networks and they're reporting a new variant of the old Coney malware. It's a malware family that's based, what, according to them, uh, based from the Korean Peninsula, and it seems to be targeting victims in Eurasia and Southeast Asia. Uh, what's interesting is that uh, Palo Alto has been tracking this malware family for quite some time, it looks like, and what they found is actually a new variant. So I took the screenshot from their blog, and it's very interesting because you could see a lot of similarity uh, in how it's structured, but towards the bottom you see there's just enough difference. Uh, so they, they, they renamed this uh, as Noki, which I'm guessing is new Connie, uh, or something like that. You always have to be clever, I guess. And the reason I, I bring this article up is actually very interesting to me, the malware research space in general. First of all, how do you, uh, how can you track these samples over time? Obviously we all know there's bad guys out there, they're hacking, but what are some mechanisms for keeping up with their malware? And another thing uh, is, you know, how are their malware slightly changing over time? Because of the malware analysis that they're doing, they're able to tie all of this back to a single adversary or to one set of actors. And that's kind of important because it helps you to understand the motivation of the bad guys and the type of thing that they're after. If you're into network defense, there's actually enough information in the article there uh, to help you create maybe snore signatures or signatures to detect the presence of this uh, threat on your network. Um, so uh, Palo Alto did a great job, I think, of documenting it. Um, and there's definitely something to learn, both you know, from just understanding the malware, understanding the targeting, and also understanding how it appears on the network and how to prevent or detect this, uh, this threat. Yeah, they did a great job. They provided a lot of IOCs and a lot of, just like you said, a lot of things to go off of. Um, one thing that I, th I thought was interesting was they changed up from delivering an EXE just a few months later to delivering a malicious doc yes. with, with macros. I mean, it's, it's common for malware to, to change up how it works, you know, the different mechanisms that it uses to get onto people's devices, onto their machines. Um, but what was interesting about this one was how little time it took to actually do so. Whenever I see either on the defense side or on the offense side, somebody new to the profession or they're just getting their bearings, they have like a set of techniques. They try the simple things, things you might have taken maybe in a class, like, oh, just create malware and send it. And then you learn, like, that malware doesn't get through, to your point, yeah. you know, what do I do differently? And then you're like, oh, let me embed that in documents. Yeah. So there's always a progression. And by tracking these adversaries, you're kind of learning what step they're at in their, uh, in their knowledge uh, of, you know, how bad they want to be or what their capabilities are. Yeah. It seems uh, the difference between the two variants is how they get the payload. Uh, I mean, uh, payload as well as the CT communication. Uh, one variant, I believe, it's uh, as obvious, uh, HTTP. Uh, one of the variant is using FTP. Uh, is it uh, just evolving from you know, try to learn or maximize their you know reach of the targets? I think it's probably, as always, a combination of both. Yeah, you know. What I've seen with adversaries, as they evolve and they make changes in the code, mm -hmm. sometimes they actually take whole, like, they, they take portions of the code and they reuse them. So mm -hmm. 
even though it looks like the malware is changing and supporting different functionality, is actually they compile some of that out with like, you know, it's also very technical, but with certain macros, they choose to keep certain functionality in to make it super tight for the specific victims. So I think they always retain the capability either to do HTTP or FTP, mm -hmm. uh, but they might compile it only for the specific target. And yeah. again, that shows a level of complexity. Not every adversary does that. Some yeah. adversaries include everything they've ever built into the sample, and you can kind of see it building on top of each other. But from the recent adversaries I've been looking at, I have noticed almost like a copy-paste methodology in their code where they'll take parts of it and then replace with some other thing they got mm -hmm. from some other text file and compile it and then send it on to, to the victims. The malware or the payload is coming in the form of an attachment. Typically, it comes through most, most likely through email attachments. Uh, the good practices would be don't open any attachment if you don't know who the sender is. In the case of a Word document, uh, don't enable macros, something like that. When you open an open machine, it will ask you to do some other things. You should just not do them, especially if where it came from is suspect. So Andy, uh, I think you have a, an exciting story for us about uh, DNS changing malware. I do, yeah. There's a great story, uh, a great article about um, a new piece of malware. Um, very similar to an older piece of malware that we've seen in the wild in 2016, uh, a little earlier, uh, called DNS Changer. Essentially what it does is it, is it scans for IPs, for router IPs on the internet. It tries to brute force the passwords, the credentials to get in, or it bypasses the authentication altogether so that it can, um, or the way it does that actually is by changing the DNS configuration mm -hmm. um, through via an exploit. What's different about this one, actually, is that um, the security research company that discovered this actually found that this piece of malware actually has a couple new twists, so to speak, some new processes going on. So what Ghost DNS is, is it's comprised of four different parts. The, the most important part is the change DNS part. And within that change DNS module, there are four smaller scripts. They, they each target different routers. Kind of the big thing about this is that we've got those sort of four modules, DNS changer, but we've got those, the shell, the, the JS, and the, the PY, PHP. Um, but that's part of, that's actually part of a bigger malware campaign that's, that this security research company has discovered. Um, the three other parts of it are the, uh, is a phishing web module, a web admin module, and a rogue DNS module. So these things combined um, have actually wreaked a little bit of havoc, and we can see that um, 70 different types of routers are affected, and currently um, there's over 100,000 different routers that are infected uh, on the internet right now. Yeah. Wow. In this case, uh, based from this article, their blog analysis, there are two points I kind of glean it. I think uh, the first one we always preach, you know, have complex passwords, especially the routers, not the simple passwords. That was one of the primary ways they get into these routers. And the second is that they're trying to exploit one um, exploit code. Uh, it's basically elevates the privileges to the, um, I think, uh, HTTP part of the router web phase. So uh, these are the recommendations. Actually, we have to flip it out, and we can say uh, recommendation should be, you know, have complex passwords, keep your routers and firmware up to date. Those are the two things which will throw out most of these ghost DNS attacks. Another thing is, I think, if I understand it correctly, change your DNS settings so it can, like, every time you visit a specific website that it targets, you're getting the wrong answer. So if that happened to you and you were browsing the internet, you might get like a SSL certificate is invalid mm -hmm. type situation, and you might get an, an, a little error. So 
I think a lot of people might have become accustomed to ignoring the SSL errors and they kind of just proceed or click through yeah. just because of how many legitimate websites are misconfigured. But it's always important to double check exactly, like if you're using a banking site and you're getting a SSL certificate error, you have to be very careful and double check uh, what is that error about. Even if you've typed in the URL correctly and it look, everything looks right about the site, if that SSL certificate is not showing you green or a check mark depending on your browser, uh, then there might still be something to worry about, unfortunately. And it's also not a bad idea, to, if possible, for the user to check the DNS domain name in the network settings, whether it's a change from you know previous time or not. That's also a good indicator. So whether you know DNS setting has been changed. Yes. Yeah, that, that's what makes this attack or this campaign that much more difficult, uh, because it's it's harder for the average user yeah. to, to see that their DNS settings have been changed. You know, mm -hmm. most people don't want to go mucking around their router. Exactly. They don't want to touch it. Exactly. Yeah. So it makes it a little bit more difficult. Of course, in that case, reset the router. <laughs> you know, start from start from scratch. But don't forget to update it. Update and <laughs> yes. change the password. Change the password. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I found it interesting. Uh, I did a little bit of research on this as well and uh, used the data we have access to. I found it interesting to see the types of uh, industries that were targeted uh, with the fake DNS results. The specific types of websites seem to fall in line with banking or financial type of fraud, which is also interesting. Always helps you to understand the motivation of the adversary. What are they trying to do with this botnet that they're building up? Every yeah, little bit helps out there. Yes. We need all the help to, you know, basically secure the internet. Yes. Great story, Andy. Thanks. Thank you, Andy. Another day, another week, another IoT botnet. Uh, this time, uh, it's about Tori botnet. It's uh, compared to previous IoT botnets like Mirai and others. Uh, it's kind of step above those with the functionality modularity they have. It's the very, very good analysis has been done by the Avast, and they have uh, some findings and uh, various indicators. Tori botnet is a, another great example of malware that's evolving. Yeah, what really got me about the Tori botnet was its complexity. Um, right off the bat, it was coming from, from Tor exit nodes, which is unusual. The one thing, the key difference uh, between the previous IoT botnets and this one is uh, it's mainly focused on data exploration mm -hmm. rather than uh, doing the usual you know, DDoS as well as the crypto mining. And it has a very sophisticated modular shell script compared to the previous ones. Uh, in, the, in this sense, shell script I meant they have uh, various components in the shell scripts to target various flavors of the architectures. Uh, I guess in this case, they're targeting about six to eight different architectures. Uh, there are different stages, actually. The first stage it looks for various payloads, and the way it does is um, it identifies the target's architecture, the CPU architecture. If it is x86, it only tries to get the payload relevant to that specific x86. Once the payload gets it, there are different ways they are doing it. Actually, there are various commands they are using, wget, a combination of busybox, as well as FTP and other combinations. The reason they are using wget and FTP is, uh, for some reason, if HTTP um, 
if HTTP way is not successful for them, they're defaulting to the FTP, so that they always have some sort of mechanism to get the payload to the uh, own devices. Uh, of course, it's XR encrypted, XR encrypted. Uh, once the first payload is successful, actually, it's actually payload to the second payload. There's another version. It's also, again, it's XR uh, encrypted. The thing uh, I want to mention and maybe mention a little bit time about is the persistent mechanism they're trying to keep on the devices. They're trying to do six ways of persistence. Uh, and coming to the C2 part, it tries to use the 443, which is uh, HTTPS for the encryption. Even though it's HTTPS, it's not using the TLS, but it's it's using it to just hide itself, I think, and utilizing it, but still, it's using its own uh, encryption mechanism. So why it's been using that, it's, um, there are a couple of reasons, I guess, anti-debugging, so that uh, we don't reverse engineer and find out what it's really doing it. The anti-debugging feature I found out from the blog is, uh, it has a feature to sleep for 60 seconds. Every 60 seconds it sleeps, and again, it does its job. And it also randomizes the process names. It has a list of names. For example, it picks up the file names from different locations. Uh, based on some sort of algorithm, they try to randomize, they mix those, and they randomize it. So that every time you're coming up with a different name. So it's sort of a pseudo-random. A pseudo-random. Okay. Yeah. They did very good analysis with that one. Uh, they went the real in-depth how they figured out that one. Uh, and also, they have multi-load encryption. Uh, it's AES-128 encrypted, and they have MD5 checksum so that nobody has tampered with the second payload in the, during the communication. Uh, it seems every time, uh, every binary, they have at least three C2 servers. Uh, I think uh, it's like a multi-level uh, fallback. I think if first one is not working, they will go to the second one. If second is not working, third one. I think that's how far they went. Uh, there are the, some of the commands used by C2 commands used by this uh, specific uh, Tori botnet. Uh, there are different, basically, different commands, what it does. Uh, in addition to this, from our analysis, we observed a few additional characteristics not discussed in the blog, but still we are analyzing it. Probably we may have uh, some additional concrete details we can share later. I picked up, uh, actually there is one specific port while they're doing in the second stage of the payload, when the first payload is dropped. During the second payload, when they're trying to use especially FPP port, there's one specific port they're using. That's a 401 TCP port. So I say, okay, let's see in our system, in our telemetry data, did we see anything uh, while happening here? Uh, here uh, I'm trying to show the past 30 days how the flow or volumetric of a specific port is there. Uh, and as you can see here, around 9 uh, September 22nd, 23rd time frame, there was a big spike up, about 65 million flow records. In fact, the analysis, the report they published was on 27. It's likely before that somebody is testing it, and uh, that's why you see you know, almost it's a flat line, and then one day it just goes up. Okay, then after seeing this, I, feel, I, I thought, okay, let me see, are there any scanners in this port? Uh, when I say there's actually similar to us, there are a couple of uh, spikes. Again, on uh, September 23rd, there's a big spike, uh, big spike in the sense that there are only three scanners. If you see the y-axis, y it's basically number of scanners looking for the specific port. And after 
uh, the report has been published, there is one right after 929. It could be some researchers might be looking at it, or maybe some adversaries, and they're trying to see what's really happening. Uh, I guess that's all I have to share. I felt it's interesting that uh, this IoT botnet is a little bit different than what we have seen. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by you know, people being able to discover these. And actually, even like, let's say you wanted to build a botnet, the different approaches the bad guys take. You know, this adversary seems to be trying to use Tor, yeah. which is, again, something we hadn't seen before. Uh, so, very interesting. It's really a testament to the uh, security research company Avast for figuring all of this out and then detailing it uh, in fantastic fashion and providing uh, a wealth of IOCs that you can then take and, and uh, develop, you know, snort signatures, whatever you'd like. I also wanted to point out that those six methods of persistence, it runs all of them. It doesn't pick and choose yeah. one or two, it runs yeah. every single one. So it, it's a concerted effort to make sure that persistence is achieved on that machine. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. In that case, actually, well, you, you brought up a good point. Actually, all the Marias and other IoT botnets, that's how they used to deliver the payload, dump all the executables and send it to the victim. I think in this case, they're using it to utilize for the persistence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, yeah, I mean, typically, I mean, typically, maybe you can find out one or two, maybe three, and still you have a three or four more left to, you know, basically tackle this out. Yeah, which just underscores the need, you know, whenever you have an infected device of any kind, you really should just re-image it and rebuild it from scratch or yeah. reflash the firmware, just because you never know how many back doors the adversary really yeah. did put in there. Cool. Thanks, Thanks, Ganesh. Okay. Thanks. Thank you. Hello everyone, today I want to tell you again about the internet weather for the past week and we start as always with the top 10 most pro ports. Uh, now there's actually not that many changes. Yes, some ports have gone up and down, but mostly all of the ports that are being targeted and scanned are the same. So I picked one of these uh, 8545 to go into a little bit more detail uh, and explain what's going on there. I think uh, just a preview for everyone to mark your calendars. The next time I'm here, I'm actually going to plan to talk about this other section, which seems to be overtaking the top 10. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's see if we can look at maybe the top 20, and that might reveal something a little bit more interesting. Um, another thing that we usually discuss is the top 10 most sources probing. Yeah. So again, there's not a lot of change here. It's the same activity that we usually see, the same types of ports that we always see. Here it's interesting because the breakdown, if you look at the pie chart, that other category doesn't really seem to overtake yeah. uh, in any way like it did with the most uh, probed ports. Um, so the, if we think about botnets, which is, this is what this is trying to show, uh, you know, they're primarily against these ports or the botnets are targeting these ports. Now um, I'm gonna uh, show you a little bit more analysis I did on port 337215. Um, and uh, that one I actually covered before, so this one is a revisit. So 8545 TCP, we've actually talked about it uh, a few times on the show. Yeah. And it's related to a vulnerability in um, Ethereum wallets. The way this Ethereum uh, works is uh, anybody knows the crypto wallet address, they can typically own the wallet for the specific user. Uh, that's, that might be the reason there's a specific interest in this specific port. So I went and I just looked at the last year mm -hmm. worth of scanning activity. 
And I, I kind of looked at the two charts side by side. So first is the scan probes, so the number of actual flow records that have to do with the attempt to find devices. Yep. And then the scan SIPs, which is the number of IP addresses actually trying to do this. Um, and you could see the scales are totally different. You know, here you have like, I don't know, what is that, 250 million peak uh, probes, but really, you know, peak, you know, 130, but mostly like, you know, 30 to 40 IP addresses are doing this on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. So I said, let me investigate this a little bit more. Who's doing this? Is there anything uh, interesting? So the view I like to use, and there's two views I like, the geographic view, and then I actually like to see who are the owners of the IP addresses. And when I did that, you could see it's pretty widespread. But the thing that connects all of these IP addresses together is that they're Tor exit nodes mm -hmm. or similar hosting providers that provide kind of like bulletproof hosting we'll services. Okay. Uh, if anybody's familiar with them, you'll see there's this dot that seems like it's in the middle of the ocean there. Yeah. It's actually like an island where you can put some of your hosting uh, infrastructure if you wanted to do something so bad. So basically like it's in the international waters. It's in international waters. Uh, apparently, you know, this is where adversaries like to operate from. So, you know, what this tells me, some, a picture like this really just tells me you know, it's not a botnet or anything like that, but there is a concerted effort probably by one or two adversaries, maybe a dozen, to go ahead and try to take advantage of this vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, just looking, some op looking at some of the open source research, they've been successful at it. It's, it's really interesting. And actually, I like this because it ties the whole reason why we do the internet mm -hmm. weather yeah. back to like uh, what is the purpose, you know, right? So uh, this is a good way to understand how some of the top probe ports uh, relate to activities on mm -hmm. the internet. And the other thing I wanted to revisit is port yeah, 37215, which is a vulnerability in a Huawei router. Well, actually, this is a slide that we talked about uh, just, I think, last time I was on the show, sometime in August. Okay. So this is exactly the same slide. So this is what was happening in August. So I wanted to see, you know, it's still on our top 10 uh, list, what's changed? Okay. Uh, so this is what's changed. It's been a roller coaster ride. Um, if you looked carefully at the map, you would have noticed that there was a little bit of changes in the hotspots on the map. Yeah. Um, like for example, in Russia, it seems to be a hotspot moved over a little bit more into uh, like this, uh, I guess, south is that southwest part of Russia, um, which is interesting. So, but all the other victims are the same, you know, like Tunisia, Ecuador, um, and there's the Korean Peninsula, China. This is stuff we've covered before. But it's interesting to me because actually that peak right there where you start going downhill, that's when we were talking about this last time on Threat Track. Like that oh. peak is when we discussed it. So since then, it's gone down. But in the last 15 days or so, it's, it's gone back up. So what's interesting is it seemed to go down after it was reported. And now that it's back up again, so to speak, we'll, I'm interested to see where it goes in a few days, a few weeks from now. So that's it for that's the internet weather today. So these are the top stories I thought were interesting. Some of it is to revisit. Uh, I think the theme of our show today was something old becomes something new. We had 
Connie becomes Naki. Mm -hmm. We had DNS Changer becomes Ghost DNS. Yeah. We had Satori type IoT botnet becomes Tori yeah. type botnets. And so this is another uh, play on that. Uh, there's always, with respect to the botnet, there's always a dynamic nature of uh, botnets coming in, I mean members coming in, going up. That's the reason we see lots of shift in scanning. I believe that's what we are seeing in the internet weather too. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.